Throughout July and August 1940, German forces assembled along the Channel coast and senior officers discussed possible plans for an assault on Britain. But as we've seen, nobody, from the senior officers at the Channel up to Hitler himself, seems seriously to have believed an invasion would ever be launched. German units remained scattered and uncoordinated, a long way from being ready to attack. It was a bluff, a threat, a means of forcing the British to the negotiating table. But then, on 26th of August 1940, Hitler suddenly issued draft orders to assemble his scattered units and at last actually to put an invasion force together. Well, what had changed? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. Perhaps one of the very few who understood Hitler was his Air Force Chief Hermann Goering. He'd been a member of the Nazi Party almost from the start, he certainly did not want an invasion of Britain. He wanted to bomb the British into submission using just the German planes. During July, Goering's planes had attacked British shipping, ports and landing fields. It was all rather random. It took Goering until the 8th of August to come up with any kind of plan at all. What he then proposed was an all-out attack, starting in two days' time, Saturday 10th of August. Well, bad weather in the event delayed it until Tuesday the 13th. The Germans then believed that the RAF could be destroyed in a fortnight. Well, a month at most. Britain could then be bombed into submission. The weeks that followed are usually portrayed as the heart of the Battle of Britain. The usual story goes that the Luftwaffe and the RAF were locked in a deadly battle for command of the British skies. Had the Luftwaffe won, an invasion would have been launched. As we've seen, this was extremely unlikely. The British Royal Navy was an impenetrable barrier as proof against the little German navy as against German planes, which had proved useless at attacking ships in the open sea. Hermann Goering himself always completely ignored the possibility of an invasion. He was only interested in bombing Britain out of the war. And the German high command backed him. On that Tuesday, the 13th of August, General Jodl, who was German chief of operations staff, the second most senior officer in the Reich, issued an order. There should, he explained, be no need for an invasion. Quote, a landing in England must be regarded as an act of sheer desperation, which need only be risked in a hopeless situation. Britain can be forced to her knees in another way, namely by continuation of air warfare, until the entire armament industry in South England is destroyed. Yodel was being pragmatic. An invasion would be too risky an adventure to attempt. Anyway, by August 13th, it was effectively too late it would take the German army between four and six weeks to assemble its forces for an invasion, and by that time, unsettled autumn weather would be blowing in over the Channel. There could realistically be no invasion in 1940. Well, it was now up to Goering's Luftwaffe to defeat the British. It didn't begin very well. When Goering got up on the 13th of August, he discovered thick fog and tried to call the attack off for that day. But many aircraft had already set off. Well, the result was confusion. For example, an attack on Middle Wallop Airfield, near Salisbury, failed when some of the planes bombed a nearby private airstrip by mistake. 
By the evening, Luftwaffe bombers were getting in their stride, targeting RAF airfields and aircraft factories in Belfast and Castle Bromwich. But over the following days, the RAF proved grittily resistant. On Friday the 16th of August, Churchill was at the operations bunker of 11 Group Fighter Command at Uxbridge with the head of his defence staff, that was Major General Hastings, known as Pug Ismay. Squadrons of Hurricanes, Spitfires, Defiance, Gladiators, Bowfighters and Blenheims had scrambled to meet another sky full of German bombers. On the way back to Downing Street in an official car, Churchill turned to Ismay and muttered, Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Churchill didn't miss a trick. Four days later, he would troop out the same words in the House of Commons and they would become a legend. Then he sang Old Man River in the back of the car all the way home to Downing Street. By the close of the next day, that Saturday the 17th of August, the Luftwaffe had lost 255 aircraft and there was absolutely no sign of Churchill coming to terms. On Sunday, that's the 18th, Goering summoned his officers to a meeting at Cap Grenet, right down to squadron leaders. He dressed them down for lacking aggression. He seems to have believed that it would just take another big push for the British to cave in. German pilots, perhaps even more than the British, were overestimating their kills in the air. That Saturday, an American radio journalist, William Shearer, had met one German pilot in a Belgian cafe who told him... In a fortnight, the British won't have any more planes. After Goering's ticking off, the Luftwaffe pilots stepped the assault up significantly. By Tuesday the 20th of August, when Goering ordered ceaseless attacks, although that day bad weather again halted flights for a few days, the Luftwaffe believed they had already shot down 644 planes and put 11 RAF airfields permanently out of action. Goering's intelligence chief... Beppo Schmidt, was telling him that the enemy had only 160 fighter aircraft left. Flights began again on the 23rd of August, and now for the first time Luftwaffe attacks really began to tell. In the last week of the month, the RAF lost one in five of its pilots, killed, wounded or missing. The first three days of September, they lost 62 fighter aircraft, the Luftwaffe only 43. In fact, over one 10-day period, 213 aircraft were lost, and for the first time, British aircraft production could not keep up, producing fewer than 150. By the 6th of September 1940, the average RAF squadron only had 16 pilots instead of 26, and the men were having to fly three or four sorties a day. The key airfield, the one at Biggin Hill, had lost its operations room and all its communications. For some days, it was running at one-third capacity. RAF Air Chief Marshal Hugh Dowding, stuffy to his men, was muttering, quotes, what we need now is a miracle. By the end of the first week of September 1940, a week of relentless pounding by the German Luftwaffe, RAF Air Chief Marshal Dowding said he was praying for a miracle. But one of Stuffy Dowding's many virtues was that he was always something of a pessimist. Many historians believe that the Battle of Britain was never as close as British tradition has it. Dowding could still draw on reserves, not only of aircraft, but also of pilots. They were located north of London, out of range of the Luftwaffe fighters. 
Historian Richard Evans estimates that on the 6th of September 1940, Dowding in fact had 738 operational Spitfires and Hurricanes. Now, strikingly, that was 66 more than he'd had a couple of weeks before, and well over 100 more than he'd had at the end of July. And whatever the old myth about the few, all along the RAF always had more pilots than the Luftwaffe. By early September, the British had more than twice as many pilots as the Luftwaffe. And even if the Germans damaged the RAF's own bases, southern England was dotted with little airfields that could be used in an emergency. Anyway, the RAF bases that were damaged were back in action within a day or two. Dowding had brilliantly created a system of early warning and command covering all of Britain's airspace. The key for the Battle of Britain was 11 Group Fighter Command based at Uxbridge, where Churchill had been with Pug Ismay, and it was protecting London and the South East. Now, Dowding's complex underground control centres and telephone cables linked Fighter Command at Uxbridge with Anti-Aircraft Command, Barrage Balloon Command, the Civilian Observer Corps and the new chain of 51 early warning radar stations around the coast. They had RAF pilots standing by on two minutes' notice, those in readiness five minutes. Calling up those available meant the RAF could get the entire fighting force in any area in the air within 20 minutes. German attacks on British radar stations had put several out of action briefly, but they were mostly repaired without delay and the British had backup stations to fill the gaps. Even after the cruel battering of late August and early September 1940, and despite the loss of many brave pilots, Dowding's system was intact and effective. In his armoured railway carriage HQ near Calais, with his masseur and his nurse and taking 30 paracodine a day for his wounds from the failed Nazi coup of 1923, Goering was genuinely mystified by his failure to smash the RAF. Beppo Schmidt's intelligence was telling him that the British had lost over 1,200 aircraft in a month, along with 18 airfields destroyed and 26 damaged. One report was that the British now had only 100 aircraft left. But still the RAF was flying sorties and shooting his aircraft down. Goering railed at his friend Adolf Galland about their pilots' failures. He blamed supply for not keeping pilots in fine food and champagne doesn't seem to have occurred to him that his intelligence was flawed. Much of it, fake figures supplied to his friend Beppo Schmidt, head of his intelligence outfit, by double agents in Britain. By the first week in September, Luftwaffe intelligence had persuaded senior officers that the RAF, if not yet defeated, was past the point of no return. It would soon withdraw all its fighters north of London, where they would be impossible for the Luftwaffe fighters to reach. It was time, Goering's senior officers were arguing, to bomb the British capital. When, quotes, we've killed a couple of thousand cockneys, argued Field Marshal Albert Kesselring, the British will beg for peace. So on the 7th of September 1940, Goering switched tactics. Instead of bombing the RAF airfields and aircraft production, planes would bomb London. It was the start of the Blitz. Now, one of the most entrenched British myths is that the Luftwaffe's switch from airfields to London saved the RAF, and with it saved Britain from invasion. It's popularly said to have been brought on by Hitler's fury at the RAF bombing of Berlin a couple of days before. Now, as we've seen, the RAF was nowhere near collapse, nor does the other part of the story stand up. Now, it is true that in the first days of September, RAF bombers had hit Berlin, twice. There hadn't been much damage, but Berliners were shocked. Both Goering and Hitler had assured them it couldn't happen, and they'd made no provision for air raids. 
on the 4th of September, Hitler stood in Berlin's Sportspalast, the sports stadium, inhaled the usual adulation of the crowd and raged at the British. He would, quote, raise their cities to the ground. The hour will come when one of us will break and it will not be National Socialist Germany. The crowd roared, never. Now the Führer lifted the ban he'd imposed on bombing British civilian targets. It wasn't in order to bomb London, but it did for the first time make it an option. The story, however, that the Germans switched to bombing London simply in retaliation for the bombing of Berlin seems to date from March 1946, when Goering used it as an excuse during the war crimes trial at Nuremberg. He was trying to shrug off the blame for civilian casualties in the Blitz. In reality, German commanders had been calling for a strategic switch to bombing London for weeks. General Jodl had tried back on the 13th of August to persuade Hitler to sanction, quote, ruthless air raids on London. Several senior Luftwaffe officers agreed. One, General Hans Jeschenek, chief of the Luftwaffe general staff, reckoned that if they targeted the English capital, quotes, everything would be over in six weeks. These men believed British morale would collapse. Goering had disagreed, protesting that the British were made of tougher stuff. He'd wanted to go on with the campaign against the RAF. What finally persuaded Goering to take the desperate gamble of bombing London in a final bid to get the British to surrender was something completely different. A surprise. On the 26th of August, Hitler had suddenly revived the idea of an invasion of Britain. And this time, he seemed serious about it. On the 26th of August 1940, Hitler had suddenly revived the idea of invading England. It was obvious by late August 1940 that the German invasion threat, or bluff, hadn't worked, and nor had Goering's bombing of the RAF. Churchill had made plenty of sombre speeches, but showed no sign of coming to the negotiating table. The German army and navy were still going through the motions of putting together a plan but were no closer to agreeing anything realistic. Gross Admiral Raider, man in charge of the German Navy, perhaps concealing a smile, had told Hitler that the army's demands were perfectly reasonable, but quotes that he saw no possibility of fulfilling them. All along, he pressed the Fuhrer to attack Gibraltar, or British interests in North Africa, anything but invasion across the Channel. On the 15th of August, William Shearer, the American radio broadcaster, had gone, in his words, quote, snooping about from Antwerp to Boulogne in search of an invasion army. Well, unsurprisingly, he found hardly a single barge. Germans were keeping them well scattered to avoid damage by air raids. Besides, where should the barges have assembled? There was nothing yet approaching an invasion plan. Operation Sea Lion seemed to Shearer to be comatose. Well, Shiro went back to Berlin and went on air in his studio and reported that in plain terms, in his opinion, the Germans were bluffing. Well, it was clear that the German threat of invasion was never going to have any effect when any passing journalist could see that there was no invasion force, that nothing was actually being assembled. It was, of course, equally obvious to any of the RAF pilots flying overhead. The British would never come to terms if they didn't take the threat of invasion seriously. By late August, Hitler had apparently decided it was therefore time to call in the contingency plan. His forces had at least to look more businesslike. 
On 26th of August 1940, he'd at last issued draft orders actually to assemble his scattered units and put together something that at least looked like an invasion force, something the British and the American journalists could see for themselves. The German army's General Halder noted, quotes, Operation Sea Lion stands. Interest in this operation seems to have increased. Well, you can feel his surprise. Just when the German commanders thought the whole insane invasion idea was safely mired in endless committees, orders had arrived to bring the barges out of the rivers and boatyards where they were being re-engineered to take trucks and tanks. Martial music began to play from the end of pier speakers and the harbours started to fill with a fleet of the botched and the bizarre. The climax of Hitler's 4th of September sports ground rant came when he yelled that the British were asking, quote, yes, but why doesn't he come? We reply, calm yourselves, calm yourselves, he is coming, he is coming. It seems that for a few days, the Fuhrer himself may even have toyed with the idea of carrying it through. Well, British intelligence evidently thought so. Until the 5th of September 1940, Churchill maintained his boisterous confidence. By now, he was sure that his air force was even more impregnable than the Royal Navy. But on the 31st of August, Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Dudley Pound, called Churchill and said that by the look of the enemy's shipping, quotes, the invasion may be pending. Even so, Churchill dictated a long memo to a colleague, when all said and done, I must say, I feel pretty good about this war. 2nd of September 1940, Churchill's codebreakers were telling him that German Stuka dive bombers, which had been specifically designed to attack land targets ahead of an army, were being parked in French airfields. While still undaunted, Churchill assured the war cabinet that, quote, actual invasion must be regarded as perpetually threatened but unlikely to materialise. By the 5th of September, however, RAF aerial photographs were at last revealing a rapid build-up of German barges and other ships around Ostend, the largest Belgian port. Like the Germans, the Royal Navy was able to work out by studying the equinox moon and the tides that the most likely dates for an invasion would be during the period of the fullest moon. That was the 19th to the 26th of September 1940, although it could come as soon as the 8th to the 10th September. Now, intelligence analysts were informing Churchill that German army leave had been cancelled from the 8th of September. Uh Aha. The British chiefs of staff reported intelligence that an invasion was imminent. Well, the RAF began furious attacks on the couple of thousand barges now packed tightly in the Channel harbours. They were perhaps the most sitting of all sitting ducks in aviation history. Eventually, the RAF managed to destroy, at the highest estimate, 214. That left another 1,859. As we've seen, one of the enduring myths of 1940 is that German planes would have protected a fleet crossing the Channel. But planes in 1940 were exceptionally bad at attacking ships. Even stationary in harbour. Now, every sane German officer knew that Operation Sea Lion was unrealistic and hoped that they would never commit the utter folly of launching it. But if even the threat, the appearance of an invasion, were destroyed and the whole summer had been wasted and Britain and her worldwide empire would continue to be a threat to the Reich. 
Now the German admirals were even complaining to Hitler that the British planes were destroying their boats. It meant that the pressure was intensified on Hermann Goering, head of the Luftwaffe. His credibility was sinking with every day the British held out. His bombers just had to force a breakthrough, somehow. So it was now, and for these reasons, perhaps against his better judgement, that Goering gave in to the pressure to bomb London. It was a last throw of the dice. The first raids on London were on the 7th of September 1940, the start of the Blitz. The London Fire Brigade logged 843 incidents that night alone. There were over 2,000 casualties. For a few days, even Churchill may now have taken the possibility of a German invasion seriously. On the 11th of September, he told the nation that, quotes, no one should blind himself to the fact that a heavy, full-scale invasion of this island is being prepared with all the usual German thoroughness and method, and that it may be launched at any time now. He compared it to the Spanish Armada that Drake had defeated. But of course, Churchill had been saying this kind of thing in public all summer. General Brooke, in charge of home defence, noted the next day that Churchill seemed his usual cheerful self. Even after the terrible bombing, the British Prime Minister showed no sign of giving in. German High Command continued going through the motions of planning an invasion, but falling well short of agreement. On the 11th of September 1940, German Army Commanders met near Rouen and drew up a long list of objections to Hitler's orders of 26th of August, which had been based on the Navy's plan. It would have meant the Army reducing its invasion force ambitions to a bare nine divisions in the first wave. The advanced combat teams were supposed to sail from Havre, which was a long way to the south, but their heavy armament and artillery would set off miles away from Boulogne. This, scribbled General Holder in his diary, involves grave risks. The army wanted to get the first wave ashore in two or three days. The navy estimated it would take ten. The navy worked out that it would lose 30% of its boats in the first landing. Army calculations had taken no account of that. It's clear that at the highest level, the Germans were nowhere close to an invasion plan. Hitler let this shambles continue for three more days, on the 14th of September 1940, with the Luftwaffe continuing to bomb London mercilessly, but no British capitulation in sight. He finally sat down to discuss the situation with his senior commanders. Like a teacher about to tell the whole class they failed a test, Hitler praised everyone's efforts. Praise for the Navy jotted Army Chief Holder in his notebook, clearly unimpressed. Hitler added that the, the Luftwaffe's achievements were, quote, beyond praise. We might imagine ironic glances around the room. But, continued the Führer, Goering's men had not won complete domination of the air, and so, quote, the prerequisites for Operation Sea Lion have not yet been completely realised. Understatement. What nobody was saying, of course is what they all knew. Air superiority would have made little practical difference in the face of the British overwhelming naval superiority. Even the weather in the Channel was now turning unseasonably rough. Everyone in the room knew that Sealan had as good as drowned. You can imagine the German commanders breathing a sigh of relief. Until, that is, they reflected it was the monstrous Operation Barbarossa and the invasion of the Soviet Union next. However, the British were still a problem. 
if an invasion was no longer even a distant contingency, and if they couldn't even get their bluffing threat against the British to work, that only left Goering's aerial assault. The Brits, after all, had to be got out of the war before Operation Barbarossa began. Another four or five days of bombing, announced Hitler, might, quotes, force Britain to her knees. He even seems to have believed that if Britain were truly battered into submission, an invasion force of some sort might at last slip across the channel to deliver the Todestos, the death blow. So the pressure on Goering was getting worse. The air attack would have to intensify as never before. The battle in the air had become not only the battle for Britain, but for the credibility of Goering and his aviators. Now was the moment of crisis, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. (laughs) 